off this uh, morning with a little lighthearted stuff. I like to do that. And uh, those of you who have heard me speak before, you know that one of my many hobbies is collecting church signs. I have over 250 church signs now, and I never cease to be amazed at the insane, crazy, silly things that people put on church signs. Especially the Baptists. For some reason, they seem to have a, a monopoly on it. But this morning, I'm not going to show you signs that have crazy messages. What I'm going to show you are my favorites. I'm going to show you signs of churches that have very, very strange names. For example, how would you like to be a member of the Grenade Holiness Church? <laughs> or how about the Hot House Missionary Baptist Church? <laughs> One of my newest ones, somebody just sent me this, comes from Southern Alabama. They photographed it on the highway. I hope it doesn't mean what it implies, but there it is. The Lily White Church of the Living God. One of my all-time favorites is this one, the Little Hope Baptist Church. Now, why would anybody want to be a member of a Little Hope Church? I want to be a big Hope Church. Or this one. How about this one, the Halfway Baptist Church. Just, not all the way, just halfway there. They're going to get you to heaven. I don't know. And then, you have to see these to believe it, the Bat Cave Baptist Church. I don't know if they actually meet in one or not. And this next one, I guarantee you, you would not believe if you did not see it, the French Broad Baptist Church. <laughs> Just about two weeks ago, I ran across this one in Mississippi, the Blackjack Baptist Church. And uh, then there, of course, these, the Beaver Lick Christian Church and the Round Lick Baptist Church. They've even got a T missing from their sign there. And uh, don't forget the Flippin' Church of God. I read that, I can imagine them jumping the pews and hanging from the chandeliers. Now, you're not going to believe this next one. This is my newest one. I've never shown it before. The other day I was sitting in my office and I was reading through the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And, and I came across one and I thought, you know, that is absolutely the worst church in the New Testament. It's the church that Jesus said was wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now I thought, I wonder if anybody's ever named their church that. I said, no, no, nobody would do that. So I Googled it. And there is a church in Georgia. Here it is. The Laodicean Missionary Baptist Church. Why anybody would name their church the Laodicean Church is beyond my comprehension. I assume they've never read the book of Revelation. And then the strangest church name in history at an assembly of God right outside of Corsicana. There it is, that church. Can you imagine a Bud Abbott and Luke Costello routine? What church are you a member of? I remember that church. Yeah, but which church? That church. <laughs> I don't know. Well, the topic that Bill assigned me for this presentation was all about heaven. Let's pray. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and I thank you so much for the rich fellowship we're enjoying. Thank you for the rich teaching that we just enjoyed. I thank you for this church. I thank you for Bill Perkins' ministry. And Lord, I pray that you will anoint every speaker today that we may speak the truth and that we may touch hearts for eternity. And I pray, Lord, that as a result of this presentation, no one will leave this place yearning for anything but heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin by considering the importance of heaven. In an excellent book that I read a number of years ago called Heaven, written by Bob Chambers, 
he started out talking about the importance of heaven. And he wrote some words that I'll never forget. He said, if there is no heaven, our faith is based on a lie. Jesus was an imposter. Christianity is a fraud. The Bible is a myth. And we are victims of the world's greatest hoax. My friends, if heaven is a delusion, there is no reason to be a Christian. And Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. And yet despite that, I often hear people say, those who emphasize heaven are often mocked. They're mocked as being no earthly good. All they do is think about heaven. Well, I love the way C.S. Lewis the greatest defender of the Christian faith in the 20th century. I love the way he responded when he was told, you have your focus on heaven and because of that you're no earthly good. Here's what he said. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Now I love this last part. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Most Christians know little or nothing about heaven. Even worse, most show no concern about it. It's a strange attitude and one that D.L. Moody addressed one time when he made these comments. I want to find out all I can about heaven. I expect to live there through all eternity. If I were going to dwell in any place in this country, if I were going to make it my home, I would want to inquire about the place, about its climate, about the neighbors I would have, about everything in fact that I can learn concerning it. We're going to spend eternity in another world, a grand and glorious world where God reigns. Is it not natural then that we should look and listen and try to find out who is already there and what is the route to take? Well, I would think so. Philip Yancey, the Christian author, put it in a more incisive way. He said, percentages do not apply to eternity, of course, but for the sake of argument, assume that 99% of our existence will take place in heaven. Isn't it a little bizarre that we simply ignore heaven as if it doesn't matter? The Bible tells us that we are to going to live with or to live with an eternal perspective. We find this in, for example, Colossians 3, verse 2. Set your mind on the things above and not on things that are on the earth. We are to keep in mind that we are strangers and we are pilgrims who are just passing through this world. We're passing through to an eternal world. 1 John chapter 2 says, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Accordingly, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham lived by faith as an alien in the land of promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And speaking of the patriarchs, in general, the writer of Hebrews made this comment, 
All these, the patriarchs, lived, died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They desired a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God has prepared a city for them. In contrast, the average Christian today seems to be clinging to this earth. And I believe that carnal attitude is due mainly to ignorance. I ask you, how in the world can you get excited about an event that you know nothing about? There's no way you can get excited if you don't know anything about heaven. I know this from experience. I was born in the church. I was grew up in the church. I was at church every time the door was open, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, vacation Bible school, gospel meetings. And what I was taught about the future and what I was taught about heaven was more Greek mythology than it was Hebrew theology. What I was taught, and I found out most people are taught this. I was taught that, for example, first of all, if you died before the Lord came, you went into soul sleep, your body just lied, uh, would lie unconscious in a grave, and, and you would have no uh, consciousness whatsoever of what was going on, and you would wait there for eons until the Lord returned. And then when the Lord returned, the big bang would occur, and the whole universe would explode, the whole cosmos would explode, the whole universe would cease to exist. And then we would be resurrected, our spirits from the grave, and we would go off to an ethereal spirit world called heaven. And we would live there for eternity as sort of uh, 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 bodiless spirits floating around a cloud playing a harp. And I just couldn't get excited about that. There was nothing about that I could get excited about. I couldn't get excited about the whole universe blowing up. I couldn't get excited about being unconscious in a grave. I couldn't get excited about anything that I was taught. And I certainly couldn't get excited about spending eternity floating on a cloud playing a harp. So what did I do? I dismissed heaven, as most Christians do, and I began to cling to this earth as hard as I could cling to it. In contrast, the Apostle Paul who went to heaven and whose experiences in heaven, experiences he said he was not able to relate, he said in Romans 8, 18, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Folks, that's a mouthful. I know people who are suffering mightily from depression, suffering in grief over the loss of a loved one, suffering from all kinds of cancer, suffering in many different types of diseases. I have just gone through uh, the death of the chairman of my board who died an agonizing, excruciating death from prostate cancer. And I know what suffering is like. And he says, no matter what you suffer, it is nothing compared to the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. That ought to get your attention about what is in the future. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, he says something similar. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has the mind of man even conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Wow. But you know what he says in the next verse, verse 10? In the very next verse, he says, but God has revealed those things through his Holy Spirit, of course, in his word. It's there for us to search out. What we must do is study God's prophetic word in order to discover the blessings that lie ahead. And so let's jump in and see what we can discover. I want to start out with the question, where is heaven? Where is heaven? The present heaven where God resides is always described in the Bible as being up. For example, Paul was caught up to the third heaven. The third heaven. Now, the first heaven is the atmosphere of this planet. That's what we call the atmospheric heavens. The uh, second heaven is the uh, outer space, what we call stellar heaven. And the third heaven where God resides is what we call celestial heaven. He says, I was caught up to that third heaven. John saw a door open in the heavens and he heard a voice saying, come up here. 
Additionally, Isaiah portrays heaven as above the stars of God, above the heights of the clouds, and in the far recesses of the north. So heaven is located in the celestial heavens. But, but the very first discovery that I made about heaven when I started studying Bible prophecy, and the one that startled me the most was the location of heaven will be changed when the time comes for you and me to abide there eternally. You see, at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, the earth will be consumed by fire to burn away the pollution of Satan's last revolt. And out of that fiery inferno will come a new earth, this earth, refreshed, renewed, redeemed, and perfected back to the way it was originally created. And we will then be lowered down to this new earth inside a new Jerusalem. And God will come and live in our presence forever. The Bible never portrays us going to heaven to live with God forever. It portrays God coming to earth to live in our presence forever. So, we can see this in detail in the book of Revelation. Look at it. There's only way you can get around this is to spiritualize it. And I believe the plain sense makes sense here. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. God will be among them. And then he says, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Now this passage raises another question. How do we know the eternal earth will be this earth refreshed and perfected instead of some entirely new earth? Well it's because the scriptures teach that the current earth is eternal. Ecclesiastes 1.4 says the earth remains forever. Psalm 148.6 states that God has established the creation forever and ever. Psalm 78.69 proclaims that God has founded the earth forever. Jesus promised in Matthew 5.5 that the redeemed would inherit this earth. It is true that in 2 Peter chapter 3 it says the earth will be destroyed by fire. But that same passage says the original earth was destroyed by water. Destruction here does not refer to cessation of existence. Rather, it refers to a fundamental change in nature. Most Christians, most Christians find it difficult to deal with what I'm sharing with you right now. I mean, the moment you start talking to them about a tangible heaven, and that heaven being this earth perfected, many just write you off as some sort of a lunatic. They have very great difficulty dealing with a tangible heaven. And that's because our thinking about heaven has been so greatly influenced by non-biblical pagan sources. First, Greek philosophy, and in recent years, the invasion of Eastern Oriental religions. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but Greek philosophy taught that all of the material world, everything you can see, touch, feel, perceive, the whole material world is inherently evil. And it taught that the soul must be released from the material body in order to enjoy a bodiless, spiritless, spirit eternity. 
the, the Greeks had the idea that the body would release the spirit and the spirit would kind of float around through eternity and there would be a spirit eternity where you would not have a body. It was this belief that produced the early Gnostic heresy, the heresy that Jesus was never in a body, that Jesus was a phantom, and therefore Jesus did not really experience death on the cross. After all, think about it for a moment. If you came to Christianity with a Greek mindset and you read about the God becoming flesh, you would have to say, oh, no, no, God did not become flesh because he who is perfectly holy could never be encapsulated in a material body which is inherently evil. Therefore, he had to be a phantom. He could not have been truly in a material body. In stark contrast, the Hebrew Scriptures teach that the creation was originally perfect, but that it was corrupted by human sin. And those same Scriptures also teach that one day the creation will be redeemed and restored to its original perfection. Jesus died on the cross not only to redeem us from sin, He died on the cross to redeem the whole of God's creation from the curse of sin. That's why the Jewish high priest did something every year when he went into the Holy of Holies that we often overlook. The part that all of us know is that he went into the Holy of Holies once a year and he walked up to the uh, Ark of the Covenant that had three items in it, the pot of manna, the Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets given to Moses, and, and that he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And this was a symbolic prophecy that one day when the Messiah came, the Messiah's blood would make it possible for the mercy and grace of God to cover the law of God. Now we all know that. But what we most often overlook is this. The Bible says that after he did that, the high priest would step back and sprinkle blood on the ground. Now why did he step back and sprinkle blood on the ground? That was also a symbolic prophecy. It was a symbolic prophecy that the death of the Messiah and the shedding of his blood would make it possible the redemption of all of God's creation, this earth and the universe. In recent years, the Greek concept has been reinforced. It's been reinforced by the invasion of Eastern Oriental religions into the Western world, religions that talk about a release of the Spirit to become one with the eternal Spirit of God. And many Christians have been influenced by this kind of thinking. Of all sources... One of the most secular and profane you can imagine, Newsweek magazine, recently published an editorial that was tremendously insightful on this particular issue. Here's what they said. America is not a Christian nation. We are, it is true, a nation founded by Christians. And according to a 2008 survey, 76% of us continue to identify as Christians. Of course, we are not a Hindu or Muslim or Jewish or Wiccan nation either. But recent poll data show, now notice this, recent poll data show that conceptually at least we are slowly becoming more like Hindus and less like traditional Christians in the ways we think about God, ourselves, each other, and eternity. A Hindu believes there are many paths to God. Jesus is one, the Quran is another, yoga practice is a third, none is better than any other, all are equal. The most traditional conservative Christians have not been taught to think like this. They learn in Sunday school that their religion is true, others are false, and that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. But notice how they end this editorial. Americans are no longer buying it. According to a 2008 Pew Forum survey, 65% of us now believe that many religions can lead to eternal life, including... 37% of white evangelicals, the group most likely to believe that salvation is theirs alone. 
It's no wonder we have difficulty thinking of heaven as a tangible, real, material place. Another concept of our heavenly abode that the Bible reveals is the city in which we will live eternally. It is referred to in the scriptures as the new Jerusalem. And oh, what a city this is. Jesus talked about it in John chapter 14. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We're told in Hebrews 11, verse 10, that Abraham lived his life looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And the writer of Hebrews refers to this new Jerusalem in Hebrews 12, 22 as Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. But the person who describes this city in the greatest detail, in the greatest magnificence, is the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. He says that this city will be 1,500 miles in every direction, length, width, and height. He says it will have 12 foundations that will be made of precious stones, each foundation with the name of one of the apostles. He says it will be surrounded by a wall of jasper 216 feet high. He says it will have 12 gates, three on each side of the city, made of pearl, each one with the name of a tribe of Israel. And the city itself will be made of transparent, pure gold. John sums it up by saying, it will be beautifully decorated like a bride adorned for her husband. It will reflect the glory of God and the city itself, he says, will be the bride of the Lamb. And I think the reason he says, uh, refers to it as the bride of the Lamb is because I believe the redeemed will be taken off this earth at the end of the millennium, that we will be placed in that new Jerusalem. And I believe that uh, from that vantage point, we're going to be able to see God superheat this earth in that great fire. I think we're going to be able to see Him reshape this earth like a hot ball of wax. And out of that fiery inferno is going to come a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, I think we may very well be witnesses to the greatest fireworks display in all of history. And I can hardly wait to see it. Now, the incredible size of the city means it would stretch from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and from the Atlantic Ocean to the state of Colorado. That is how big this city would be. Remember, not only does it going 1,500 miles in each of those directions, but 1,500 miles up as well. And this raises a question. Would such a city be able to accommodate all the redeemed? Would it be able to? Well, let's just take a look at that for a moment. It's a good question. And the best answer that I have ever found to this question was given by a great man of God, Dr. Henry Morris, who's gone on to be with the Lord now, in his book, The Revelation Record. This was a scientist calculating this. He has all the mathematical calculations in his book. He postulates, just for the sake of trying to figure something here, he postulates that the total number of redeemed throughout all of history, including children born, uh, die, who die before the age of accountability, might be as many as 20 billion people. That's B, 20 billion people. He further guesses that as much as 25% of the city would be devoted to streets, to parks, and to public buildings. Now, the question emerges, could 20 billion people be squeezed into only three-fourths of this city? The answer is yes. In fact, the answer is a resounding yes. Believe it or not, each person would have a cubicle block of space with about 75 acres on each face. And that's a whole lot more room than I've got right now. I tell you, I'm looking forward to all that elbow space. 
We're talking here about a city of immense size. But the best part of the city is not its beauty, it's not its size. The best part of the city is the fact that God the Father and Jesus will both reside in the city with the redeemed. The city will be illuminated by their glory. The throne of God and His Son will be in the city. And a river of the water of life will flow down the middle of the city's main street. Also, the tree of life will grow on each side of the river. And these trees will bear 12 kinds of fruit, yielding a different fruit for each month. This raises another question. And that is, what are our activities going to be in heaven? How will we spend our time? Well, I'm happy to say that we will not spend our time floating around clouds playing harps. That's not going to be it, folks. Now, if you like to play a harp, I'm sure God will arrange it. But, uh, in fact, one of the funniest cartoons I ever saw in my life, it showed a line of people in white robes getting ready to enter the pearly gates. And as they were entering the pearly gates, each one was being handed a harp. Underneath was a line of people in black lined up to go into hell. And each one of them was being handed an accordion. <laughs> now, we have any accordion players here. I'm in deep trouble, but anyway. <laughs> the Bible does not elaborate on what we're going to do in heaven. It's strangely silent. But what it does say is important. It says, we shall serve God. And what more could you ask than that? I mean, what more could you ask than to spend eternity serving your Creator? I would imagine that our gifts and our talents will be magnified beyond anything that we can possibly imagine, that we will be able to paint painters as they've never painted before, poets write poetry as they've never written before. I would imagine that singers would be able to sing as never before, and all of them will do everything to the glory of God. I fantasize a lot about our heavenly activities. I can imagine us spending a great deal of time in worship, singing the Psalms of David, for example, with David leading us. Wouldn't that be exciting? Or surely we will spend considerable time studying God's Word. Think of studying the book of John with John as the teacher. Or reading, going through the epistles of Paul with Paul explaining all those very complex ideas that even Peter didn't understand. That would be fun. Do you remember what John said in John 21, 25? And there are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, well, I want to know what he's talking about there. I want to hear those stories that are not recorded uh, in the uh, Gospels. That's going to be exciting. As we study the Word, I believe we're going to grow in spiritual maturity in the likeness of Jesus. And since God is infinite... No matter how much we grow in His likeness, there will be just that much more growing ahead of us. In this regard, I suspect that our spiritual growth will pick up in heaven where it left off here on this earth. Sometimes I, I really get far out in my thinking about heaven. For example, I, I can imagine the Lord giving us the opportunity to see instant replays of great events in Bible history. I hope so. I've got a list ready. It's a long list. On the list are things like the dividing of the Red Sea, the fall of Jericho, and the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. I want to see those things. God's outside of time. He sees the beginning, sees the end. Sees, why can't we be in that same situation? We're in heaven. And we can look back and see these events as well. I, I, I hope we can. I would like to see uh, 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 take tours of the universe. I mean, I believe in our glorified bodies. 
We could take tours of the universe without even being in a spaceship, without even having oxygen or whatever. We could just go out and see up close the glories of God's creation. This is the latest photograph from the uh, uh, telescope uh, out in space. And, and can you believe that? This beautiful butterfly nebula, and God has a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand, millions of these things out there that we can get up close and see, I think, uh, in our glorified bodies. I'm hoping that will be the case. We don't know for sure. Well, this brings us to another fascinating aspect of our heavenly existence, and that is namely our bodies. The Bible teaches that when we die, we receive a temporary body, which theologians refer to as our intermediate spirit body. Now, there's a lot of evidence of this in the Scriptures. I don't have time to go into all the evidence, but one place I would refer you to is Revelation chapter 7, where John's taken up to heaven, and he sees all these people standing. They're clothed. They're waving palm leaves, worshiping the Lord. And he says, who are these people? And he says, these are the martyrs coming out of the Great Tribulation. They have some sort of intermediate spirit body. And, and it's intermediate in the sense that it's a body between the mortal body we have now and the immortal body that we will receive at the time of the resurrection. So we have some sort of intermediate spirit body. When Jesus returns, he is going to bring with him the spirits of those who have died in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a painting that's just been done by uh, a lady, uh, Pat Marvinko Smith, of the rapture. I don't know how clearly you can see it there. But at the top you have the angel blowing the trumpet. You have Jesus appearing as a bridegroom. You have the church appearing as a bride. And in the train of the, of the bride you have the dead in Christ being resurrected. And on the way up he takes their spirits and puts their spirits back together with their bodies. In the twinkling of an eye he glorifies their bodies. And they receive their in. They're immortal, eternal, glorified bodies. And then those of us who are alive, we are taken up. And on the way up, we don't even experience death. We're just translated from one form to another, from mortal to immortal. I'm praying that you and I are going to be a part of that, that generation that, that will uh, be taken up to meet the Lord in the sky. You know, all my life I've been told. All my life I've been told that there are two things that people cannot avoid, and that is taxes and uh, death. Well, I got news for you. There's a whole generation going to avoid death. But nobody's going to avoid taxes and more taxes and more taxes. They're just going to keep on coming. So there we have it. The Lord's coming back and the resurrected, and at that time we're going to receive our glorified bodies. Now, Paul describes a glorified body in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, raised an imperishable body. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now what does he say here are the characteristics of a glorified body? It's imperishable. Imperishable. What does that mean? It's going to be immortal. You're never going to be sick again. You're never going to have a sore knee again. You're never going to have a headache again. It's going to be immortal. It's going to be glorious. That means it's going to be perfected. It's going to be powerful. You will never be, you will be immune to sin. It means you're going to be, it's going to be spiritual. That doesn't mean it's going to be some ghost. It means it's going to be submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit. Our new glorified bodies will be like the bodies that we have now in that they will be tangible, they will be recognizable, but they will be immune to disease and aging, and they will be perfected. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the mute will speak. There will be no handicaps of any kind. Praise the Lord. Isaiah put it this way, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. All of us know someone with handicaps of one kind or another. Some more severe than others, they're all going to be straightened out when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Also, the glorified body will have a new dimension to it. 
We know that because Philippians 3.20 says our glorified body will be like the body of Jesus after His resurrection. We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. After His resurrection, Jesus was recognizable. Jesus was tangible. Jesus was somebody who could be touched. But Jesus had a different dimension to his body. He could appear in a room and suddenly disappear from the room. He could be in Jerusalem one moment and in Galilee the next, on the road to Emmaus next, and back into Jerusalem. He seemed to be able to move around at the speed of light. Our bodies are going to have a new dimension to them. One thing that should be noted in passing, and oh, I get excited about this. Four times we're told that Jesus ate in his glorified body. And um, (laughs) I have this fantasy that we'll be able to eat all we want in our glorified bodies and never have to worry about gaining one ounce. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This brings us to a mystery concerning heaven. A mystery. And this mystery is a very interesting thing. I can only speculate about it, so realize I'm just speculating. Since our bodies will be immortal, there is a statement about heaven in Revelation 22.2 that raises a great mystery about heaven. Look at it. Revelation 22.2 says... The leaves of the tree of life will be used for the healing of the nations. What in the world does that mean? What nations will there be that that need any healing whatsoever? Who are these people? In Revelation 21, 24, it states that the nations will exist on the new earth outside the new Jerusalem. And that they will be composed of people who are capable of sinning. In other words, it appears that there will be nations on the new earth composed of people in mortal fleshly bodies who can sin, who live outside the new Jerusalem and are not allowed to come into the new Jerusalem. Again, who are these people where they come from? The Bible doesn't say. But I want to ask you, could they be the redeemed? Could they be the redeemed who accept Jesus during the millennium? Nothing is said about the ultimate destiny of those saved during the millennium. No promises are made to them of glorified bodies. It could be that part of the productive work that we will be doing through all eternity is reigning and ruling over these people. Revelation 22.5 says that the redeemed will reign with the Lord forever and ever. And to reign implies, of course, that we must reign over someone. I'll leave you to figure out all that. There are, of course, many other questions about heaven that are unanswered in the Scriptures. Questions that we can only speculate about. For example, will we have our pets in heaven? Will we have our pets? Well, all I can say is I certainly hope so. But the Bible is silent. However, there's some clues. Heaven, let's keep in mind that animals are an important part of God's creation. God saved them when He destroyed the earth by water. And we are told over and over in the Proverbs, for example, in Psalms, that there are many verses command us to treat animals humanely and to treat them with compassion. We know that there are animals going to be in the millennium. That in the millennium the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the lion will eat straw with the ox, the children will play with the snakes and the lions. There will be perfect peace between animals and between man and the, cre- and the animals. We also know that there are animals in heaven right now. John describes them in Revelation 4 and 5 before the throne of God. But will some of them be our pets that we have loved so much in this life? Will they be our pets? Well, I can't say But I wouldn't be surprised. God loves to delight his children with gifts and with surprises. And I hope that little dachshund is there when I get there. I'd love to. That's that's Elizabeth. We call her Queen Elizabeth. And she rules the house. Every once in a while I look at my wife and she looks at me. And in unison we say, what a mighty dog we serve. Because she. (laughs) 
There are many, many other, many other questions that people ask about heaven. And the best resource I know is this book here, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. The only problem is it's uh, only available in hardback and very expensive. Two other resources I would recommend are a brand new book published last week by Ron Rhodes called The Wonder of Heaven. I just finished reading it. It's absolutely marvelous. And Ron Rhodes is often a speaker here at the uh, State of the Mind conferences. And the video that we produced that contains three of our television programs about heaven. These resources answer such questions as, will we have emotions? Will we have desires? Will we maintain identities? Will we be good looking? <laughs> will we be male or female? Will we have sex? Will we appear all at the same age? One wonderful thing that we can be assured of is that we will not be capable of sinning. Praise the Lord. Mike mentioned this in his, in his presentation. Revelation 21 says, In the eternal state there will be no more death for the redeemed. And since the wages of sin is death, the promise of no more death is a promise of no more sin. We will be freed from our sin nature. We will have the mind of Christ. And yet people still ask me all the time, Won't we be able to sin like Adam and Eve sinned? I think the answer is absolutely not. Unlike Adam and Eve, when they were in the Garden of Eden, we have been made righteous through the atonement of Jesus Christ. Randy Alcorn summed it up best. He writes, our greatest deliverance in heaven will be from ourselves. Our deceit, corruption, self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, hypocrisy will all be forever gone. Well, I have thus far related many wonderful things about heaven, but I have not yet mentioned the most glorious aspect, the greatest blessing of all. Revelation 22.4 says, we will see the face of God. It is no wonder, and I love this statement, it is no wonder that Randy Alcorn says, we will be slack-jawed on the new earth's first morning. We will be. The Bible says in Exodus 33.20 that no person has ever seen the face of God, but we will be given that privilege when we have fellowship with Him in heaven. And folks, that is what heaven is all about. We will experience intimacy with our Creator eternally. The Bible says in John 4.23 that we were created for the purpose of fellowship with God. And that purpose will reach its zenith in the eternal state as we live in the presence of God. Well, what about you? Are you clinging to this world or are you yearning for heaven? The more you come to know the Lord, the more you will love Him. And the more you love Him, the more you will desire to be with Him. That's only natural. We always desire to be with those whom we love. Let me illustrate this important point. I love my wife, Ann. In June of next year, we will be married 50 years. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I have to travel a lot. I call her every night I'm on the road and I tell her I love her. When I have to be gone for an extended period of time, I prepare love cards. I go to the store and buy love cards. And I put little X's and zeros for hugs and kisses. They're mushy cards. And I, and I put a little yellow sticker on the front of each card with a date on it. And my office manager mails her one of those on each date while I'm gone. And if I have to be gone for two weeks or more, I arrange for special gifts to be taken to her. Like uh, bouquets of flowers. I love to talk with my wife by phone. I love to send her notes. I love to surprise her with gifts. But let me tell you, those are not adequate substitutes for being with her. When you love someone, you want to be with them. In like manner, I love to fellowship with the Lord. I love to fellowship with the Lord in worship. I love to fellowship with the Lord in Bible study. I love to fellowship with the Lord in prayer. 
But these spiritual activities are no substitute for actually being with the Lord. I want to stand in his presence. I want to bask in his glory. I want to tell him how much I love him personally. I want to thank him for never giving up on me. I want to kiss his nail printed hands. Personal, intimate fellowship with the Lord. That is the essence of heaven. And all I can say is may it become a reality soon. Maranatha, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Thank you.